Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good Friday morning, everyone. We'll begin today on the news this morning that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died in prison, and we've got none other than Masha Gessen from The New Yorker to talk about it with. But first, on MSNBC's Morning Joe, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, who served under President Obama and was a personal friend of Navalny, had this blunt reaction to the news. Putin killed Navalny. Let's be crystal clear about that. I don't care about any negotiation, you know, investigation, his ill arrested, had him in solitary confinement. He has put him in a, a cell which was designed to, and today he is dead. Putin killed Navalny. And why did he? Because Putin is weak. You don't kill people if you're strong. Putin killed Navalny because Navalny was the one opposition leader in Russia that Putin feared the most. So this is a really tragic day for me, and it should be a tragic day for anybody who cares about democracy. Yeah, those little dropouts were on McFall's line, not on your device, but Michael McFall on MSNBC. We have probably the perfect guest to talk about the apparent murder by Putin of Alexei Navalny and what it means. The journalist Masha Gessen, dual citizen of the U.S. and Russia, wanted by Putin himself for their reporting on Ukraine, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of 11 books, including Surviving Autocracy and The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which won the National Book Award in 2017. Masha's family, by way of background, emigrated from the old Soviet Union to the United States when Masha was 14. Masha went back to Russia in the 90s and worked as a journalist there until 2013, when it became too hard to be an independent-minded journalist there, then moved here again and has been living in New York since for this past decade. They have met, debated, and written about Alexei Navalny in the past, not always favorably. Their latest New Yorker article published last week was called Tucker Carlson Promised an Unedited Putin. The result was boring. We'll get to that, too. By the way, we can't take credit for jumping so fast on the breaking news to get a great guest like Masha Gessen. Masha was scheduled to lead our show today already to talk about Russia and Ukraine. But now, tragically and outrageously, we have this development. And listeners, I want to open up the phones. Anyone else with ties to Russia? want to eulogize or comment on Alexei Navalny and his sudden death in a Russian prison? 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, call or text. Anyone with ties to Ukraine want to talk about what now appears to be a kind of permanent state of war? Masha wrote a long article on that recently, and we'll get to that in some detail as we go. Any Ukrainian Americans out there right now or people with any connection to Ukraine? 212-433-9692. And domestically, listeners, anything you want to say or ask about the United States' relationship to Russia, like the apparent pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party rising in the House of Representatives, or the U.S. role in Ukraine on any of those things for Masha Gessen from The New Yorker, 
WNYC 212-433-9692. We're having a little trouble getting Masha's line connected. Uh, We're almost there. Um, Are we there? Yes? Can I say hello? I can. Masha, always good to have you on the show. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. Good to be here. Do you assume as unambiguously as Ambassador McFall in the clip we just played that Vladimir Putin has had Navalny killed? Yes. Navalny had already... Uh, well, that, I, I guess I asked a yes or no question. You gave me a yes or no yes. answer. <laughs> Correct. Uh, Navalny had already been sentenced to a long prison term in a remote part of Russia. What would Putin gain by taking this next and ultimate step? I think that Putin continued to be scared of Navalny and Navalny's popularity uh, and Navalny's the way in which Navalny symbolized a future, um, a future Russia without Putin and a different Russia. And it's also, and he's also just, he's a vengeful little man. He's wanted Navalny dead for a long time. So I think there's a combination of fear, um, which Putin always feels around the time of so-called elections. He's coming up for election next month. So-called elections, not actually an election. And, um, And at the same time, I think he's also feeling empowered. He's feeling empowered because... Uh, Ukraine is faltering. Uh, U.S. aid to Ukraine is stalled. Uh, he feels confident that there's an incoming Trump administration that will uh, not uh, in any way protect Ukraine or um, or really bother with trying to stop Putin from uh, what he's planning to do to the rest of Europe and to his own people. And so that combination of feeling both scared and emboldened I think, is what moved his hand at this time. That's an interesting answer in the context of the McFall clip that we played from Morning Joe. I don't know if you heard it as your line was getting hooked up. But he said that Putin wanted Navalny killed because Putin is weak. It sounds like you don't agree with that. I don't agree with that, no. I think um, I don't, uh, there's, there's no evidence that Putin is weak. Uh, he is really stronger than he has ever been. Um, the war has been great for his hold on power. It's been great for the Russian economy. Uh, he sees himself be- becoming ever more powerful. He's also paranoid, um, but nobody should mistake paranoia for weakness. Dictators are often paranoid, and in fact, that's that's a strength for dictators. The more paranoid they are, the longer they stay in power. Mm. Do you think there's kind of a wishful thinking, uh, Putin is weak, strain that keeps surfaces? I'm thinking about um, the armed uprising last summer by Yevgeny Prigozhin and members of the Wagner Group, which had been fighting for Russia in Ukraine. Uh, but then Prigozhin wound up dead. But some of the analysis at the time of the uprising was it was happening because Putin was weak or Putin would then be weak because of the uprising. Uh, But he crushed that rebellion with an iron fist and had its leader put to death. And now there's this. So do you think there's some Putin is weak, wishful thinking that comes and goes? I do. We've been hearing that Putin is weak for, I don't know, over a decade for sure. Um, I think I engaged in some Putin is weak theorizing 
back during the mass protests of 2011-2012. And then I, for one, learned that um, there's a big difference between the presence of some sort of unrest, the a break in the in the power monolith, an occasional break, and a path for that break to actually uh, lead to change of regime. That path is very very long, very non-linear, and basically, I think at this point, with the way that Putin has changed Russia and has established his power, I think that path is non-existent. I was already reading your most recent New Yorker articles when I heard the Navalny news this morning, so I went back and read your piece from 2021 called The Evolution of Alexei Navalny's Nationalism, and I saw that it was also about your own evolution on how you perceived Navalny. He had taken some pretty hateful positions in the past, and I see that you had debated him. How did he and how did your view of him evolve? You know, I think Navalny was one of those extraordinary politicians who actually grow and think out in public. I think that's what one of the things that made him so compelling, so charismatic, and made him have such a broad appeal in Russia. Uh, he he did start out as a not terribly well-educated, young, fiery activist with some really hateful national uh, far nationalistic uh, ethno nationalist positions and he evolved over the course of about a decade into a civic nationalist now i know americans are not generally used to that kind of um, distinction between civic nationalism and uh, and ethno nationalism but it's a very important distinction ethno nationalism is what we often use uh, what we often mean when we say nationalism, and what we mean then is far-right politics, ethnicity-based politics, politics of xenophobia and hatred. Um, civic nationalism is uh, is a politics of building a healthy, democratic nation-state for all its members. And that was very much uh, Navalny's position. He also very interestingly moved from libertarian to sort of social democrat positions. Uh, he he was an an always student. He was um, he was constantly learning languages and um, and new areas. He uh, he, stu- he studied political science. He studied religion. He studied economics. He was um, he was a learner and um, and he was strategic, but not embarrassed to talk about things that he had learned. Can you tell us about a time that you debated Navalny? What was that about and how you processed it over time? Um, it wasn't exactly a debate. He was running for mayor of Moscow, and um, and at some point uh, I was asked, uh, not by him, but um, I was asked uh, what he would have to say in order for me to support him and and I said that he would have to renounce his his ethno-nationalist positions. And um, I, I don't really remember what I said, but I sort of proposed a way in which he could talk about the issues that that compelled him. His campaign manager agreed, but Navalny never actually adopted that statement. But I think a more interesting conversation, uh, and one that's really haunting me, was a conversation that I had with him when I interviewed him for The New Yorker um, right after he came out of a coma. Uh, precipitated by the poisoning with with chemical weapons with Novichok when he was 
he was he was then saved by Russian doctors and then evacuated to Germany. Was in a medically induced coma in Germany for a number of weeks. And when he came out of the coma, before he really even started rehab, he gave a few interviews. And um, I said to him, you know, uh, you and I have had this argument in the past where you have always insisted on calling Putin and his people uh, crooks and thieves. And I've always insisted on calling them murderers and terrorists. And are you convinced now that they're murderers? And he said, no. No, they're crooks and thieves. They um, they murder in order to protect their wealth. Um, this was his lens, uh, and it was a lens that was incredibly compelling for a Russian audience, this idea that what was wrong with the system was that it was profoundly corrupt. And he was not wrong. Uh, but I don't think it's the fundamental trait of Putinism. The fundamental trait of Putinism is that it's murderous and terroristic. Uh, and a side effect of that is the accumulation of, uh, of wealth and the consolidation of power. Um, and I think that his insistence on uh, on the idea that there are crooks and thieves who killed to protect their wealth was probably self-protective. It, it's probably what gave him hope. It probably what gave him the ability to go back to Russia. But in the end, they're just murderers. Listener writes... Ask Masha why Navalny returned to Russia knowing he would be arrested and imprisoned. Um, he wanted to be president of Russia. I think he thought that he could outlive Putin, that he would be sort of Russia's Nelson Mandela. He knew that if he stayed in the West after the assassination attempt, he would lose uh, he would lose touch with his potential future voters. He would lose political standing. He would be just one of those guys uh, like Mikhail Khodorkovsky or Gary Kasparov who say smart things from abroad but don't have an, a domestic audience. Mm. So he he took what he thought was a calculated risk. He was willing to stay in, in prison for a decade or two decades, however long it took. He's, he was 30 years younger than Putin. He thought he would outlive him and become president. But now he's dead. Matt in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC with Masha Gessen from The New Yorker. Hi, Matt. Uh, hi, thanks very much for having me on. Um, yeah, I, I'm just calling because I'm a colleague of Evan Gershkovich, and obviously this is terrible news and a different situation, but... Let me just I say for help. listeners who don't know the name, he's the Wall Street Journal reporter detained in Russia. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I, I just couldn't help but think here's another person who's in prison under false claims but, and has written things that are highly critical of Putin personally in terms of his economic handling um, of, of Russia. And I'm just concerned. And also, I wonder if this means anything for the potential for a swap um, that could get him home sooner. Matt, thank you. Masha? Um, I think this is this is a terrible, terrible sign. There was um, there was a moment in Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson, uh, probably the only truly informative moment when um, Carlson asked Putin about a potential uh, the potential release of Evan Gershkovich, and Putin said that he would only be swapped for a Russian assassin named Krasikov, who is in a German prison, and. Um, 
this is, I mean, I, I, I can't go into a lot of detail on this, but I think that part of what we're seeing is a message to the Germans and to the West more generally that if you want to get these people out of Russian prison alive, you better give up Krasikov. Who is he and any chance of that? Um, I don't think I'm qualified to speak on the chances, but uh, he is a Russian assassin who uh, who carried out a murder in the middle of Berlin um, of a political target and was arrested and is serving his sentence in Germany. He is really the only... To my knowledge, uh, the only Russian assassin of the many who have been roaming the streets of Europe and killing Russia's opponents, he's the only one who's been caught and brought to justice. So not a fair exchange, I guess, is the implication, that kind of assassin for a Wall Street Journal journalist. Well, I think it's fair in in Putin's eyes. Putin imagines the world as... um, as two giant systems uh, who uh, that wield their agents, and he, I think, sincerely perceives uh, Western journalists, especially enterprising Western journalists like Evan Gershkovich, as sort of agents of power. <clears throat> to him, they they could be put on the same level as an assassin. And we'll get back a little later to your latest article in The New Yorker, which is about that two-hour media interview that Tucker Carlson just gave Putin. Um, But to the point we were just discussing, if I may, can you remind people of in what way you are wanted in Russia for your journalism? We talked about it briefly the last time you were on, and this is still new, just a few months old. Mm -hmm. Are, Are you at liberty to say why it escalated to that point? Well, I'm, a, I'm one of several hundred uh, journalists and activists who have been charged by Russian authorities with what they call sp- knowingly spreading false information about the special military operation, which is what they call the war in Ukraine. I talked about Russia's war crimes in Bucha, the suburb of Kiev, where people were, civilians were summarily executed in the streets. And... Uh, I was charged with uh, I was charged with this and arrested in absentia and eventually will be tried in absentia and sentenced in absentia probably to somewhere between seven and ten years in prison. Um, a number of people who are facing these kinds of charges are also living in exile, but a number are serving these ridiculous sentences in Russian prisons. Do you feel safe as long as you're not physically in Russia? I don't think any opponent of Putin ever feels fully safe. I think I'm a lot safer than many others. We will turn to Masha's reporting on Ukraine, a very detailed article on the war at two years in The New Yorker a few weeks ago, and take more of your calls and texts, 212-433-WNYC. Stay with us. on WNYC with New Yorker journalist Masha Gessen. We've been talking so far about the news this morning of the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. 
Marcia, today is February 16th, next Saturday the 24th. As you know, it will officially be two years since the invasion of Ukraine began. One main point of your recent article on the war was that Ukrainians are beginning to consider the war a kind of permanent state rather than something short-term that they will win and move on with their lives. Is that how you would describe it today? Yes. Um, And then for one thing, Ukrainians are quite aware that the war is not two years old, it's 10 years old. The war began with the occupation of Crimea in February 2014. And the full-scale invasion, which began two years ago, to... Ukrainians at first felt like an emergency. Their defense was so robust that most people, I think, believed that, and had to believe to, to survive, that they would be able to beat Russia back and really, truly, decisively defeat Russia. And decisively defeat Russia means take back Crimea, which would really precipitate the, the collapse of the Russian Empire. What they're understanding now is that they um, the counteroffensive that began last spring has faltered. The situation at the front is, uh, in the best case, a, a stalemate. In the worst case, it's a slow, slow retreat on the part of the Ukrainians. And uh, American aid is stalled. Ukraine is going to run out of munitions uh, next month. And it's running out of people who can fight at the front. It's a really dire situation. And psychologically, it is a dire situation because people, um, people were mobilized and inspired, but more and more they feel tired. They feel disconnected from the people who left the country. They feel like the population of the country has basically split in two um, and will never be able to, to reunite. And the thing that I really wanted to focus on was, you know, we, when we talk about the war in Ukraine, we speak rightly of not only Ukraine's existential struggle, but the the struggle for the future of democracy anywhere. Ukraine uh, was an inventive, hopeful, young democracy that was willing to go to war to protect, um, to protect its political system, but you can't have democracy in war. Obviously, elections are postponed, uh, military administrations take a lot of authority, um, and this is all inevitable. A, a de facto rule by decree is inevitable. All of that in the long run is destructive to the very thing that they're supposed to be protecting. You quote a prominent Ukrainian journalist, Katerina Sergatskova, who asked, what are we fighting for, land? Should I take from that question that some Ukrainians are beginning to think fighting for total victory is not worth the sacrifice? I think they are. I think they at least want that uh, question to be part of the public discussion. Um, But, of course, it's incredibly politically fraught because they're not only talking about land. They're talking about people, people. at least 5 million Ukrainians are living under Russian occupation. And any Ukrainian leader, any Ukrainian negotiator, who, if there were ever any negotiations, which, by the way, none are because Russia is not sitting down, but even if we imagine the negotiations happen, uh, we would be asking Ukrainians to say, we're giving up our people 
to the treatment that they receive from Russian occupants. Uh, that's a politically incredibly difficult proposition. Um, but should it be more difficult than the proposition that Ukrainians should be fighting an endless war with um, with so many people dying at the front and so many civilians dying daily, nightly, during Russia's bombing and shelling? Let's take a phone call from Stephen in Brooklyn, who says he's a Ukrainian-American. Stephen, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Hi. Um so despite the um, uh, apparent stalemate on the ground, uh, Ukraine has made certain uh, advances, uh, and I was wondering if Marsha could talk about those, such as the opening of, of a corridor in the western uh, uh, Black Sea. Uh, it's using its use of um, the um, uh, drones, these uh, marine drones, to blow up the uh, um, Russian ships. And so that has created this corridor for grain to come out. Uh, Ukraine has also made some advances in uh, blowing up uh, ammunition depots and and, uh, shipyards in Crimea. And so I was wondering, uh, and I think the perception out there is that the war is at its whole stalemate. And I was wondering if Marsha could uh, possibly talk to some of the um, positive uh, advances that Ukraine has made despite uh, uh, despite the stalemate on the ground. Thank you, Stephen. Masha? Um, look, I, you know, I'm not a military expert. Uh, I am much more interested in what it feels like, uh, what people who are not at the front lines are talking about and how they're imagining their lives. Um, as far as whether or not it's a stalemate, uh, I am going on what Ukrainian military experts are saying, such you know, people whom I quoted in my article, also Valeria Zaluzhny, the commander of Ukrainian armed forces who was uh, dismissed shortly after the article came out. I mean, no connection there, but um, but he called it a stalemate. Uh, and there's a you know, obviously, yes, there there incursions that Ukrainians have made into Russian territory. They have certainly probably, and again, because I'm more interested in the psychological aspect of it. Uh, they have made Russians feel affected by the war. They have made Russians, certainly near, who live near the border, feel unsafe, which uh, I think is, is part of warfare and is an important part of warfare. But when you get to the question of, is it realistic to expect that Ukraine will win this war? I think more and more people in Ukraine are coming to the conclusion that no, that's not realistic. And what that means, is that uh, either the war just goes on forever, uh, which is a prospect that I think appeals to Putin, or uh, there's a temporary negotiated settlement. But what they're saying to me is any temporary negotiated settlement is just going to mean a, uh, a constant military threat at Ukraine's borders and time for Russia to regroup and attack again. Russia will never recognize the right of Ukraine to exist. Gene in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC with Masha Gessen. Hi, Gene. Uh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so I'm just wondering, in connection with the previous conversation as well, is there any sign of any opposition among uh, Russian legislators or leaders 
because of the war in Ukraine. I mean, this must be, this would be a disaster for Russians if they actually understood it. I had a, I have a close friend in Russia who assured me uh, two days before the invasion that Russia would never invade Ukraine. They were cousins. They were friends. It would never happen. I haven't been able to speak to her since then because I'm afraid uh, that she'd get into trouble if I said anything. Uh, but I can't believe Russians, if uh, there aren't, isn't Russian opposition to this war. Thank you, Jean. Masha? Russia is a totalitarian dictatorship. Opposing the war lands you in prison. Uh, people who've staged the tiniest little protests, such as there's an artist in St. Petersburg who replaced price tags in a supermarket with little tiny microscopic um, anti-war slogans. They're not even anti-war slogans. They're like facts about the war. She has been sentenced to seven years in prison. Uh, so I, I'm not sure what the caller imagines Russia to be, um, but there's no such thing as Russian legislators or leaders. Well, this election coming up in Russia that, as you said, is not a real election, Putin running for yet another term. What do you think would happen hypothetically in a Putin-Navalny election where Navalny alive and the election were free and fair? Is it a question even worth asking? It's not a question worth asking, um, but it is it is worth unpacking just how uh, how much Russia has restored totalitarianism. Uh, there's in order to stage an election, you would not only have to put somebody on the ballot, you would have to change the entire country. You would have to create from scratch electoral mechanisms. You would have to create from, from scratch media that have been completely taken over by the state and uh, who are always in, um, in a competition to say more extreme things to please the Kremlin evermore. I mean, you couldn't even have an election in Russia, I think, with at least, without at least a year or two of political rebuilding. Let's turn in our remaining minutes to the U.S. role. In the last week, Donald Trump and Speaker of the House Mike Johnson rejected two bills from the Senate that would have funded Ukraine, the bipartisan compromise that included new border controls, though that did not technically get out of the Senate, and the bill without the border that was just military assistance for Ukraine and others. Here is Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, on Morning Edition today on NPR, responding to Speaker Johnson's reluctance to fund Ukraine, claiming that Europe should be doing more. A substantial amount of the military assistance going to Ukraine right now is coming from our European allies and partners. We've rallied a coalition of 50 nations to make major contributions in weapon systems and other capabilities. But to your question, there is no substitute for the kinds of resources and the t types of capabilities that only the United States can provide. It is an obligation we have to help defend the people fighting for their freedom, to help support European security, and to help avert a situation where if Putin wins in Ukraine, all of Europe is at threat and the likelihood that the U.S. gets dragged into a conflict goes up. Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor to President Biden on Morning Edition today. 
So, Masha, what's your take on what Trump and now Speaker Johnson are up to here? Is it as fundamental as if Trump gets back into office, they want to shift the U.S. alliance structure from European democracies as our core partners to Putin and other pro-Trump authoritarians? I don't even think they think in terms of alliances. I think they're truly isolationist and ignorant and want to break things. But I also want to say that this is a situation created by the Biden administration. Even when there was early on in the, in, in the full-scale invasion, when there was overwhelming support for aid to Ukraine, the aid was consistently insufficient. Um, there's a myth created that, uh, that this is the greatest amount of aid that uh, the United States has ever given. Uh, that, uh, to, to, to war effort anywhere, that claim really does not stand up to fact-checking scrutiny. Um, in any major foreign war that the US, the U.S. has been involved in, its contribution has actually been greater since World War II. Uh, the United States has had the ability to stop the war and to stop the carnage of Ukrainians since the very beginning of this war and has not done so. Uh, and now that we're in a situation two years later where even this insufficient amount of aid is being questioned, we also have to remember that it's partly the result of indecision and dragging our feet and being um, you know, using the buzzword escalation, which basically translates as we only want to help Ukrainians as long as it's only Ukrainians who are risking their lives. Um, you know, that's, that's gotten us to the situation where we are now. Well, is the two-hour media interview that Tucker Carlson gave Putin that your newest article is about a sign that the MAGA movement, which says put America first, wants to push Russia alongside it and marginalize the West? Again, I don't think they really think in terms of alliances. I think they love their dictators. Uh, I think um, I think Tucker Carlson genuinely finds Putin and Moscow inspiring, just as he found Orban and Budapest inspiring, whenever that was a year or two ago. Uh, in that way, he is he is Trump's doppelganger. Uh, Trump also finds them inspiring. I don't know that I see them building alliances. I do see them simply taking an isolation stand and letting Putin do what he's going to do to Europe. And what he is going to do to Europe is absolutely terrifying. He is, uh, Russia is an expansionist power and Putin has made his, his intentions clear. Let me take one more call. And this is kind of going to be pushed back to a lot of okay. the premise of the conversation we've been having. Michael in Huntington, you're on WNYC with Masha Gessen. Hi, Michael. Yes, uh, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Um, i got to tell you, I really uh, just tuned in kind of late, but this is the same kind of nonsense we've been hearing since this thing started. We act like the war started in, in, in uh, two years ago. Uh, this started back in 2014 when we had a coup and we helped uh, change the government of the Ukraine. And what, it's really not in the United States' interest what happens there. I'm sorry, it's just not. And uh, Russia moved in to protect the Russian speakers of, that, of the Luhansk and Donetsk. And um, it's the same kind of uh, justification we used when we went into Yugoslavia, responsibility to protect. Now, look, I don't really care about either side. But all I know is that this country doesn't defend its own borders. And we really have no national interest in the Ukraine. 
And honestly, the expansion of NATO was completely unwarranted and was the, was the, was the, uh, the, the cause of a lot of this. Now, but Michael, I'm going to leave it there because well, Marshall guy, has to this go guy in really a has couple his, of minutes. Go ahead, He Marshall. really has his Kremlin talking points down. Wow, he hit every note. That's incredible. Uh, that is what Kremlin propaganda sounds like. That is exactly it, note for note. Um, Ukraine is a sovereign country. It's, by the way, Ukraine, not the Ukraine. Uh, it's an actual country. The people of Ukraine staged a heroic revolution in 2013-2014. They stayed in the city square for, um, for three months, even as the police fired at them, even as more than 100 people died. They stayed and they defended their future, their idea of democracy. To call that a coup, which is what Putin does, is to is so incredibly disrespectful to the to the really inspiring and heroic people of of, of Ukraine. Um, the same goes for the rest of the caller's points. I don't I can't regurgitate them, but really, you know, just go on any Kremlin website any time of day, and they will all be there, note for note. Yeah. Um, so last thing, and I want to thank you for giving us all the scheduled time that you were going to be on for today anyway before the Navalny uh, death news broke, and I know you have to go mm -hmm. and write about it. One more listener comment, and we'll close with your reaction to this. Listener writes, I was born in mid-'70s Lithuania, and when a teen, when Lithuania declared independence. The fact that Russian people became a victim to another dictatorship and they don't have a possibility to break it off at this point, as your guest, Masha Gessen, is saying, I agree with. It may sound defeatist, but my country is free only because Ukraine has withstood the Russian aggression for so long with the help of NATO. So I shake in my boots when I see a prospect of Trump being elected. Not only would he support every other dictatorship of the world, but he would institute one in the U.S. himself writes that listener. And Masha, you, you end your Putin Tucker Carlson article with the line, if I were Poland, I'd be afraid. So apparently Lithuania too. Do you think Putin or the Russian people actually want to occupy or dictate to the government of Poland again? Putin obsessively talked about Poland in his interview with Carlson. He mentioned Poland more than 30 times. He blamed Poland for starting World War II, uh, for, and not just for starting World War II, but for inciting Hitler's aggression against Poland uh, in using the exact same words as he uses when he talks about how Ukraine incited Russia's war against Ukraine. Uh, so, yes, I think he is putting, uh, he's, he's, putting things in place uh, propagandistically for an invasion of Poland. Poland, which, not coincidentally, has just unseated a, uh, an authoritarian government and is rebuilding its democracy. It's very much in the same stages of political reinvention that Ukraine was when Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2014. Um, this is the kind of thing that gets Putin going. This is uh, his righteous anger against the former subjects of the Russian Empire, right? And he's reaching back into history to when Poland, uh, much of Poland, was part of the Russian Empire to find justification for invasion. And um, yeah, I believe he really wants to crush Poland. 
New Yorker staff writer, Masha Gessen. Masha, thank you again very much. Thank you for having me.